Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. Joining me on the show today are Fergus Fielden and Edmund Fowles, the directors of Field and Fowles, a highly recognised London-based practice known for their sustainable and characterful public and cultural buildings. In this episode, Fergus, Edmund and I discuss the importance of competitions to help develop their portfolio, studio culture and connections with potential clients, how they were able to curate their website to appeal to cultural, public and educational sector clients, despite having little built work in those areas in the early years of their practice. We discuss the benefit of designing a unique studio space that represents their practice and values as architects, as well as a space to host parties and lunches to build better client relationships. We talked about the importance of investing early in the practice's graphic design and brand identity so that it would be consistent across every touch point and build trust in their brand. And finally, we looked at how they discovered that their low-tech approach to sustainable design could become a key point of difference for their practice. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Fergus Fielden and Edmund Fowles from Field and Fowles. Edmund and Fergus, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. My pleasure. Maybe take me back in time to the early days of the practice. How did the practice start? How did you guys meet? Well, we studied together uh, at university. We were at Cambridge and we started doing some competitions together. Um, We actually first met even before that on our bikes uh, and had a shared passion for cycling. So that's awesome. We were were talking technical stuff around bikes and uh, I was admiring Ed's bike and his skills on it. (laughs) So so I thought he's, he's all right. uh, (laughs) My kind of guy. (laughs) Yeah. My kind of guy. And uh, yeah. And then we, in our second year, we were in the same unit uh, and there was a series of competitions that were run and, Ed and I were paired together, um, and it seemed to be quite a powerful combination of skills and enjoyment. Uh, so that was the very first starting point. Yeah, then um, we kind of did did sort of well with that kind of competition, and um, went on to graduate from university. And um, fortunately, we were kind of offered a small project um, just to try and get planning on a on a rural site in in Wales. And he reached out and said, should we do this together? So we were still working our day jobs, um, but we thought it'd be great to collaborate uh, together on, on on a small commission. It was a very kind of slow burn project. So um, I think it took over a, a year and a half to get planning permission um, on the scheme. It's quite a sensitive setting. It was a house on a beautiful kind of rural uh, site overlooking the Brecon Beacons. And I think it was a project that really began to kind of sow the seed of our kind of interests uh, and our values Um for the, the future practice that we'd formed. But at the time, we didn't even have a name. You know, we were kind of on the bedroom floor of, of Fergs, uh, working away on models and then came to the point of uh, having to submit planning and we didn't have a name on the drawings. We're like, what should we call ourselves? <laughs> Fowles Fielden? No, is, is that right? Fielden Fowles? Yeah, yeah, done. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. And I remember when I first asked Ed about whether he wanted to to join me and, and, and do this commission together and the kind of the relish and passion which came back immediately, like the hunger to to deliver a project. 
I I thought, you know, I've asked the right person. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was great, and uh, and and it made it so much more enjoyable because it was quite a risk. We were completely unqualified. We had never delivered a building. <laughs> we, we, we had a very steep learning curve to go through. Yeah, but well, we were both kind of um, also working in in practice during the kind of sort of daylight hours, <laughs> and then it's sort of evenings and weekends, sort of plugging yeah. away at this uh, this other commission. But what what that gave us, I think, was um, a safety net in a way. It was really yeah. great to kind of have uh, uh, more experienced grown ups in practice. He kind of knew that you knew yeah. what they were doing, offering us advice. We were able oh, to put drawings under under their nose, and yeah. that was uh, that was really uh, helpful. And in terms of the skill set that you touched on, then that felt like it was a great partnership. Was it because there was sort of one person had strengths where the other kind of maybe had gaps or was it just kind of similar, but you're both so like-minded and passionate about the same things? I think it's really interesting because we probably started out with being being kind of more dissimilar and, yeah. and having kind of strengths in different areas. And over the last sort of 15, 18 years, however long it's been, um, we've kind of uh, aligned more and kind of Absolutely. learned from each other. There's certainly kind of Ferg's um, skills in a, you know, to engage people, to excite people, to communicate, um, always really kind of inspiring. I was more kind of head down, yeah. really into sort of technical detailing and, yeah. and kind of drafting and drawing and that, and that side of things. Yeah, we've converged in terms of design style and all sorts of things, which is, is great. But it's, uh, yeah. and we can, when in design reviews now, we can often foresee what the other one might be thinking or, uh, yeah. or, or, or we, we, we always, uh, at competitions especially, we've, we've often kind of worked really closely where, where one person will pick up an idea and we'll, we'll kind of escalate it quite quickly and, and bat ideas to and fro and very quickly we'll kind of settle on a concept. I, I think where we were totally always aligned was around design values and around yeah. our social values, our hunger to build, our kind of desire to actually understand the construction as well and mm. get our hands dirty, get on site, do trials, do mock-ups, speak with the builders, you know, kind of just get stuck in on every level. Um, yeah. And take that role as like a design team leader really seriously uh, and not kind of defer responsibility to other people in the profession. And so that project that you're working on then, it was quite specific, you know, this residential planning thing, which is obviously not like the kind of thing you ended up. What was the journey that you kind of went on? How early on did you decide on the type of work that you really wanted to be doing? When did that start to kind of crystallize? What TPREN, the first project gave us, was a bit of a springboard. Um, so we were actually building that during our part two, graduated from part two. We were fortunate to publish it and then uh, were able to pick up a few other smaller kind of domestic projects. But we knew from kind of the early days that we didn't want to just work on kind of residential projects. We wanted to work on more public work, cultural projects. But we had to do our time, you know, kind of mm. four or five years. We were sort of plucking away at kind of the smaller residential projects. And they, they were really um, helpful. We were working in other sensitive contexts with historic buildings. So we built up a real skill set through that work. But we we're re really fortunate to um, begin working with the school and uh, offering some really kind of uh, ad hoc advice sort of for, for very kind of... Uh, low fee, doing a little sort of strategic uh, master plan for the school, uh, delivering a small covered outdoor classroom. And bit by bit, we were able to kind of grow our, grow the sort of trust with that uh, client. Yeah. And we ended up developing um, a, a sort of significant building for them, our, our first sort of Reaper award-winning project, which was um, the Applied Learning Centre, the Lee Centre at Ralph Allen School, which was a kind of uh, three or, or so million pounds of six classroom building with, with a hall space. So yeah. it was our first... Uh, proper kind of public project. Yeah. 
within a year, because we had those commissions, within a year we had rebranded or re-kind of skinned our website so that we didn't look like domestic architects. <laughs> Tell me how you suddenly <laughs> made it look like we went from domestic overnight to obviously the public focus, but not having a lot of completed work at that point. How did you do it? I think it was partly about the, the, the way we kind of describe the work. So we were doing a, a couple, we designed a couple of exhibitions as well. So suddenly we could say we work in arts and culture. Uh, we did the school. So we had an education sector and, yeah. you know, from that we had kind of out, covered outdoor classroom, uh, arranged a master plan, a building. Um, and then we had uh, sort of other work, sort of residential work, but we called it heritage because it was sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, adapting an old cob barn. So we were just sort of trying to make the very most from uh, relatively slim pickings and, yeah. and small projects. We would update the website all the time. So because we would we were desperate to appear kind of more grown up and experienced than we were. So, so we would, it was, the website was, was good, but we, but it was constantly being updated and it probably wasn't as kind of carefully proofed and things as it would be these days, but yeah, it looked, it looked professional, but I remember our old tutor from university, Tom Emerson from 6A, so really respected architect. He said, I really like the energy on your website. You've got all your information up there you know and it's it, it's changing and I, I thought that was quite an interesting bit of feedback what sort of information do you think you're putting out there that he was referring to we were showing kind of construction uh shots and process uh because we didn't have enough built work <laughs> yeah. so we were we were showing a lot yeah a lot of the process uh so we we employed a model maker really early on. In hindsight, it was kind of madness, but it was also it was also really important because we we started to have a load of beautiful models, and the studio was populated by lots of interesting models. But but we were hardly earning anything, and it was we couldn't really afford to to have him. But it was the kind of again, it set the values, <laughs> it set the tone. <laughs> and we were working alongside him. So he was also an architect. He had studied with us. So initially there were a few people we had studied with who we were working with and things like that. But uh so we had already had that experience of being in a studio together. Um that was that was quite important in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think we've always um talked a lot about the team on the website, even from those early days yeah. we'd We'd, um, everyone would have a profile on the website, whether they're a part one or a director. You know, yeah. um, we'd have a lot of um, a text about kind of our values and about the approach and about our interests in different sectors. Yeah. Um, so I think we've always been very kind of transparent and as open as possible and, and used the, the website as a kind of a sort of lens into kind of everything that we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. yeah. And architects, architects are known for having terrible websites, <laughs> you know, quite esoteric and uh, obtuse and uh, quite opaque. Yeah, yeah, and and websites primarily directed at other architects, I think, is often the criticism of which we've heard. And uh, and so ours was ours has gone through a few iterations. Sometimes it's been uh, sometimes it's been more about the process. Then we said, okay, we've now got a, a body of work, so we had more of a kind of portfolio site. Uh, and now we've just we're just in the process of kind of making some changes again, and it's much more current and live again. So, yeah. Today's episode of Office Talk is sponsored by Office Dave Sharp. Striking the right balance between your business goals and the long-term integrity of your brand starts with a comprehensive and considered marketing strategy. 
At Office Dave Sharp, we work exclusively with architectural practices to provide you with a deeper understanding of your brand and an in-depth strategy that brings your practice ambitions to life. Through the creation of a bespoke 12-month marketing plan, we develop a complete understanding of your business and identify areas for elevation and improvement from your media strategy and brand identity to your messaging, project imagery and beyond. With a long-standing background in architecture, strategy, and marketing, we use tested methodologies and measurable approaches to help you better navigate the path forward. To learn more about our process and book a consultation, simply visit officedavesharp.com. I feel like my impression of your website, first looking at it years ago, was that the kind of the office culture side of the site was as interesting or more interesting than the projects in some cases, because particularly, you know, having a film, particularly showing your studio space, showing the kind of way that the people that you work with were all kind of hanging out in this beautiful garden, eating lunch. I think your office building is such an important asset in terms of communicating what you're about, right? So distinctive. So I don't know how how early that sort of happened in the piece, but um, it was completed in 2016, but the, but it originated in 2014. So uh, yeah, working working with two charities to give them a bit of pro bono support on uh, on creating a city farm in the centre of London on a meanwhile site. But then we were we got to the point where we couldn't really afford to do that anymore. But there was also they couldn't afford to develop the whole of their site. So that, at that point, we said, well, how about rather than us withdrawing, why don't we get more involved and we could uh, we could we could build a space provide them with some desk space within it, help them with their funding, oversee the master plan. So that was conceived in 2014. But we then, it took us a couple of years to get enough, uh, well, to get a decent project into the practice to for us to afford to build our studio. So that was then built in 2016. Yeah. But, but as you say, you know, that is a huge part of of our identity and our culture. Then we started using the studio to help us win work, you know, to mm. invite clients in. And when they visited, they were like, oh yeah, you guys are a bit just different. We always kind of used the studio. We kind of envisaged it as a kind of manifesto for the practice. So lots of the kind of the values and kind of ideas are kind of embodied within, within this building. We often talk about our approach being quite low tech, um, so um, we use a lot of timber, often you know, design buildings, um, principally from timber frames. Um, so it was a really interesting journey we went on designing the other agricultural buildings on the on the city farm, kind of growing in scale. And then uh, the studio, which is a slightly more refined, but kind of borrows all sorts of ideas from, um, you know, the idea of kind of artist studios and dropping in north light from the the clear story um we have this lovely expansive view out to the gardens and it was always really important to us to kind of make the most of the kind of the walled garden existing kind of victorian garden wall outside we worked with a really uh, wonderful landscape designer to, to form that that courtyard but it completely transformed our culture as a practice going from a kind of um a warehouse type office space um very cold uh no outdoor space um to uh yeah a really kind of warm uh, rich environment with a kind of outdoor space we've got a model shop here we've got kind of um we can eat outside in the summer it's it it is really glorious i mean we're we're very fortunate to 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 have it i guess like going back to that sort of period where in terms of how you presented the practice to sort of make that transition to look 
bigger and more established and to put your values out there and to show your team and all that sort of stuff. And also to make the most of the work that you were doing in process. So like model making, construction photos, all that sort of beautiful stuff. Behind that and in the background, what were you doing in terms of relationship building or pitching for work or competitions? What was that side of things looking like and what sort of things were you doing? We were always doing uh, competitions almost from the the year that we set up. Uh, We were never afraid to to go for them uh, because they were kind of part of, I guess, partly because we had started doing competitions together in second year. So it it was very much part of our culture. And we've always found that doing competitions brings the team together. And there's a, there's a level of kind of collaboration that's so intense and that in a way for kind of professional development for the team and our culture, it's always been really important. But so, and we were lucky to start getting invited onto some mid lists and, or short lists for, for some competitions quite early on, often as the kind of almost like the rank outsider, you know, like, oh, well, we, for a bit of diversity let's throw these kids in the mix and uh so which was uh it was it was great for us because we had real exposure but we also inevitably spent a huge amount of time and effort on them on the face of it you could say it wasn't great from from the point of view of say finances but yeah but actually it was building our reputation and once we started getting onto shortlists uh for for competitions that were being published people were taking us seriously because they were like, oh, I saw you published in, in this journal or that journal. And actually, we, we landed one or two of the really big international kind of open competitions relatively early on, uh, you know, after like five or six years. Uh, and But that was, that was really thanks to having honed that over many years. And actually, we're, we're quite good at interview. We get to We get to build on those values, talk to the clients, you know, if we can, we inevitably try and get under the skin of what the project is really about who the people are that we're going to be working with and and that approach runs through all the projects but and over time now we've got now we've got such an amazing bunch of clients that we work with that's reassuring for them as well um but initially we were trying to kind of yeah trying to build those relationships and trust yeah, I think one of the, the first sort of major open competition we won was for Hamilton College in Cambridge, and that was launched in 2016, uh, it was a completely open call run by Malcolm Redding. And we threw ourselves at the competition and I think, you know, something like 150 entrants to, to that. Um, but I think a really massive part of um, the success of that competition was um, the sort of second round of the interview process. And we brought the uh, client team to our studio and... Um, as I said earlier, so much of the studio building and our sort of team approach and our kind of culture um, is embodied within yeah. the, the, the studio. Um, so they were able to kind of see that firsthand and we were able to kind of draw references between uh, or likenesses between the kind of design that we produced for the dining hall and uh, on a smaller scale, the, the buildings here at the farm on, on the site. Um, I think, yeah, as Ferg said, a lot of, um, I think, our success at sort of competitions has been from really getting under the skin, getting to know people, down to sort of meeting, I don't know, the gardeners uh, on a site, having a chat to them, trying to find out where the kind of, um, where you can kind of uncover kind of knowledge about a site um, and kind of wisdom about a particular site from from individuals. And, And that actually trickles trickles up to the people that are often kind of um, judging or on the panel, yeah. you know, those conversations, they, they kind of sense that there's been a, a real kind of effort and interest and um, you're really kind of 
committed to to their project. The competition process also it does drive uh, design and identity in a way that doesn't necessarily happen on a direct commission uh, because you also want your project to to be distinctive in some way or memorable or it wants to, you, you have to distill it right the way down uh, before you build it up and that, and lots of lots of our competition schemes uh, have the, the designs have have lasted and endured right the way through to completion and that's 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 pretty exciting in the space of like to design say a multi-million pound building in the space of a few weeks and then it lasts and then the process takes five years to deliver it but when it comes out and it still has some resonance with you yeah, concept. It's good. Is it something that you still do actively? Was it one of those things that was kind of helpful in those earlier days before you built that body of work, which is kind of like question number one. But I just want to add sort of a second question to that, which is that you crucially talked about where you actually got to engage with the clients and meet with them and go through those like second and third stages or, or whatever those those steps. Is that something that you always found available in these competitions? Because I, I always kind of got the impression that it's kind of like, put in your A1s, like your three panels and your model or whatever, and like you then cross your fingers and hope that you win was kind yeah. of what I felt. So so was there a particular sort of criteria or a type of competition that you were really trying to look for or filter to? In terms of uh, why we do it and you know, the, the kind of purpose of doing that kind of early on and, and now, and we, we're still very much uh, doing competitions. We still go for open call competitions. I suppose we, we probably limit the number of those that we do, we kind of allow ourselves maybe a couple of completely open competitions a year, but then we're, we're doing quite a bit of like invited competition, um, submissions as well. But in the early days, I think it was, it was about kind of sharpening our design skills, I suppose. And, and also kind of, um, learning about new building typologies and, you know, we've never designed housing. What better way of kind of developing your skills, designing it by doing a few competitions in, in that arena and and through doing that you know if you do a really good competition submission and you you come kind of in the top top two or top four or something and you're published you can put it on your website it kind of broadens it certainly helps to kind of broaden the portfolio of work or the kind of perceived range of work from from quite an early stage um and now i think where you kind of use competitions um goes back to that that earlier point ferg made about um keeping kind of intensity or kind of having punctuating the year with moments of kind of real um intensity and we see it as quite a kind of a way of bringing the team together in terms of our profile you know they they have it has served us incredibly well uh and has helped us kind of take quite a relatively fast trajectory uh and we would kind of benchmark ourselves against the, the practices who would be competing with um most architects are quite competitive when you see there's yep. people you really respect and you're up against them you know we do kind of yeah we do pull out all the stops <laughs> i think that competitions in the uk have a reputation for being quite an abusive process yes um and i think that is true in that it is often a beauty parade um mm. and you have to be really selective about which ones you go for and whether you think that scheme is actually going to go ahead because yep. um Quite often, the, the, there'll be a competition that you may or may not choose to go for, and then you find out it just kind of evaporates, and there's, it's not even reported. You know, but people have spent tens of thousands of pounds on it. So, luckily, m lots of ours are publicly funded. Um, so, if they're government funded uh, and they're public schemes, 
they tend to be more supported, we find, or if you know that there is already funding in place for, for a scheme and that it's not just an ideas competition. Yeah. I think we're also quite selective. Um, we, we try and do a bit of homework to understand um, what the nature of the competition process will be yeah. like, because there are some processes which are really kind of, you're really distanced from um, from the client, from the organization, you have no contact time. And we really like competitions where you get some form of engagement, you're allowed to kind of meet people. Um, there are maybe several kind of rounds of, uh, of opportunities to kind of meet with uh, key sort of decision makers, people who work for the charity, museum, gallery. Yeah. Um, and we, we find that approach much, much more sort of successful, uh, being able to kind of really kind of immerse ourselves in, in their organization. Best avoided the kind of stitch ups, you know, some, some competitions don't have any architectural representation. So they, they ask for a design competition and yet there's no design, there's no design expertise or component in the mm. judging. Uh, and so ones like that, we would try to avoid. <laughs> in terms of where you find that those particular types of groups or bodies or institutions or clients or whatever are becoming aware of your work, uh, is it the same sorts of channels that anybody else would like just general sort of previous competitions and projects being published in sort of architecture journals and that sort of stuff? Is there like a particular area that you found you sort of think, oh, it's really important to get our work seen in this particular place or that particular place. Like I'm looking for maybe something that could be possibly unexpected, like, I don't know, some London design week or talks or something turns out to be way more effective than, you know, is there anything in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think from from a really early stage, the practice is always um, really valued doing PR and um, and paying for that as well and, and writing a strategy every year that gets updated and, and, and sort of sitting back and really thinking about where should we be positioning ourselves? How should we be talking about our practice? Where should we be giving talks? And, um, you know, we, do, we don't have sort of endless time to kind of put into PR, but um, the time that we do want to put into it, we should, we should use that time really carefully and, and sort of position ourselves. So, um, I think when we've always looked at kind of the RIBA benchmarking in terms of expenditure on different, uh, areas, um, we always found like, oh, we're, we're spending like a huge percentage of our, uh, of our turnover than, yeah, than is yeah. sort of the, the benchmark. So, um, so, yeah. um, I think that's, that's had an, an impact in terms of, I think our, our profile has always been slightly ahead of where where we perhaps are in terms yeah. of scale. Um, so um, very early on, we took on a, um, a publicist and that's that's sort of given a level of professionalism to the way that we um, we undertake kind of PR activities and the way that we kind of produce press releases. So I think that that's given a kind of, certainly kind of raised our profile in in the sort of trade press and and beyond as well with kind of uh, national articles about, um, about the practice. So I think, um, yeah, that, that's been a really important I think I think yeah, national press. So kind of you know daily newspapers. There's a there's a couple which have where there's really respected uh, critics who have written about our work from the outset. Actually, even way back in I think maybe it was 2010, we had a we were part of a group where where there was an article called Britain's Brightest Young Architects, and we couldn't believe the title. You know, it was it was perfect for us because <laughs> it was excellent PR. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, that served us really well, but then we also connect our clients quite a lot. So we will take 
existing clients or potential clients on precedent visits to our finished projects. We host quite a lot of parties whenever we can uh, on our site. Yeah, and and, and deliberately kind of say to them, you know, if we're giving a a speech to welcome everyone, we'll, we'll say, these are the people who we've got here today be great to connect to you because they they do they work together it strengthens our projects they appreciate it it kind of spreads the spreads the network that's all really useful and uh and we do find it especially some of our arts clients like the the people who are especially kind of galleries for example it's it's a relatively small world and they know one another they're very inclusive they like to have their own parties they love to party i bet <laughs> And so, yeah, so we get to meet people through that and that's great. Bring it up. I think where I was kind of curious about was, do you find that in terms of your reputation with this sort of institutional client, is it the press around? Because I think the, the press and the PR tends to fall into stuff that kind of revolves around the projects like, you know, RIBA, Architects Journal, The Zine, like, et cetera, et cetera. But then you've got this more sort of like mainstream profiling of, you know, more like profiles and pieces about you guys and the practice and the growth and success of the studio and like that sort of brightest young architect sort of stuff. And I sort of wonder like that plus talks plus other things. uh, Have you found that that like profile driven stuff has possibly in some senses like actually had more of an impact than just more like your traditional sort of architecture press? I think definitely because it's like the spirit of the practice. It's like the it's people want to know who you are, don't they? They we all want to work with people we think we might get along with, or we might uh, collaborate well with, or might bring something different to to a situation. So, and we we certainly you know during a pitch we would talk about that a lot. But also, I think it's really important that we put that energy out there through you know really nice activities like giving lectures yeah. or podcasts or profile pieces. Uh, and actually, when we looked at the analytics on our website, that was one of the things that we noticed was that people were more interested in our process, uh, in the people page, in the kind of those profile articles, because they are there. There's a broader kind of alchemy, uh, and it's hard to define, but it's it's much more interesting than say the set piece of a single project sometimes. You briefly touched on it, but talking about when you do get to those, uh, when you get to those later stages where you do actually get to engage and sort of immerse yourself in the project, you, you did pick up briefly on this idea of like kind of turning up on site and just talking to everybody and trying to really um, have as many conversations as possible. And I guess like interested in a little bit, if you could just expand on that a little bit in terms of what that sort of looks like and then how that's perceived by that client when you sort of present the results of that. I don't know if you sort of tell where this information that you get, you collected came from or talk about, we met this, we met this person and that person and we found this out and found that out. Or does it just kind of synthesize into the design or is it about also demonstrating, Hey, we we've done our research. We've met your people. We've listened to you, that sort of thing. Yeah. I I think it's a a bit of both. I mean, that knowledge uh, finds its way into the way that you respond to the site, the way that you design, the sort of sensitivity with which you um, put forward proposals. But also we we try and bring that in, in terms of the narrative. Um, it, say in, in a pitch, we might talk about, oh, we found this out. It was really interesting speaking to your gardener or the porter or uh, or so on. Um, and they, the, the clients we have really, really love that fact, the fact that we've kind of really engaged and spoken to people, spoken to students, spoken to staff. Um, 
or even spoken kind of more widely to kind of people kind of tangential to their sort of area of, of interest. Um, so that, that there's, yeah, there's, there's sort of two angles to it for sure. Um, and there was one occasion, so the, the, the project uh, for Hamilton College, where after we'd, we'd won the competition, it was sort of several months later, but the, uh, the principal of the college said to us, you know what, um, one of the reasons we picked you guys was, um, you know, the porter really liked you. And, uh, you know, we, we'd gone through the assessment process, but <laughs> she said, oh, I really like those guys, Field and Fowls. They were so friendly. You know, they, um, yeah. they, we had a nice chat every time they visited, you know, they had such a nice spirit to them. Yeah. Um, and we, we want that. We want to make a good impression. It doesn't matter, matter at what stage, at what contact point with, with any of our clients. We, we want yeah. to sort of, yeah be positive and proactive and yeah we absolutely do it's interesting the bigger the institution sometimes the harder it is to get closer to them because there's so many people and actually sometimes the people running the really big institutions because they don't have enough time they 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 sometimes say well we won't trouble you with these you know with introducing you to these people but so we sometimes have to slightly fight to to still have that but uh because it is it is so critical. They're going to be the people using the building. They are our audience and our client as much as the people commissioning them sometimes. Are there any other sort of selection criteria that you think are pretty meaningful to the clients that you've been working with? There's that sort of listening and feeling like you've understood their brief and spoken to people on the ground and that sort of thing. Is there anything else that comes to mind just in terms of things that you felt have been big priorities, maybe stuff that you've concentrated on making sure we're, we're we're really you know pushing that. I think um, you know sustainability is is huge for for all public institutions now, and, and many of our clients it's sort of top of their list uh, in terms of project priorities. Um, maybe just behind cost <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and program <laughs> and those other important yeah. things. But but it, but it's um, you know compared to. You know, five years ago, even now, you know, embodied carbon is there's much more awareness about yeah. that, even though it's not kind of regulated um, operational carbon and so on. And I think um, we, we've tried to kind of always be on the front foot with those topics. We've tried to sort of practice as we preach in terms of our own studio. Um, we undertook a kind of exercise to uh, become a kind of net zero carbon business um, through the kind of Green Building Council. And um, we've measured the embodied carbon of our building. So we've, we've got all these sort of in-house tools. We have kind of documents, sustainability policy. Um, so whenever we're, we're pitching um, for competitions and pitching ideas to do with their projects, we can say, well, this is work we've done on our own smaller scale at our own studio. These are kind of topics that we understand inside out and we're proactively kind of exploring, you know, because it's, it's hard to get to net zero. It's going to be incredibly hard, but... Um, and, and we've got to sort of start that process at yeah. home. And it, it's been a way of actually kind of educating our own team and um, everyone in the, in the team sort of coming along on that journey of sort of educating ourselves. And I'd say just to, to add to that, that the uh, sustainability criteria comes through to the materiality of our work and that uh, we, we've always used a lot of natural materials and a, and a kind of low-tech approach to architecture Uh and so lots of our lots of our institutional clients actually really like the fact that our buildings feel less institutional <laughs> so uh, and that's largely through the kind of materiality the expression of structure the articulation so that's also become a bit of a point of difference as well just in terms of material palette and natural materiality that you've become a bit kind of known for yeah i think what we've been trying to do is um use this massive shift in the, in the way that we're 
going to have to build to define a new architectural language. Um, so rather than designing buildings in a kind of modernist style or a postmodernist style or, or whatever, and then bolting on some green stuff, really kind of thinking from first principles how we should be making buildings today. Um, so using bio-based materials, earth, stone, timber, principally, if we can, and trying to mi minimize everything else <laughs> as much as possible in terms of steel, concrete, and so on. I mean, there are times, there are opportunities when you need to use those materials. They're, they're the kind of best best material for the job. But I think there's an extraordinary opportunity to, um, to make buildings in a more kind of vital way, in a more kind of primitive way. And I, I think kind of um, it, it's sort of conveyed in some of the buildings we've built recently. And we were trying to scale up this idea of kind of making buildings in a more low-tech way. We uh, went into the National Railway Museum competition with this idea of trying to make a really big building low tech and uh, trying to use as much timber as possible. And that's principally a, a timber frame building for a national museum. Yeah. So um, yeah, there's, there's lots of challenges with, with scaling up those ideas. Yeah. It, it, some of those things have, have been more defined recently, but even at university, like we had a really good environmental course that was around passive solar design, you know, getting the environmental first principles right around siting a building, the orientation, the sunlight, the prevailing conditions, pattern of materials. And so uh, our very early work was already already doing that. But as Ed says, more recently, the challenge has been how we scale that up uh, and, and keep those qualities. I guess it's something that I imagine that a lot of your other co competitors I can use the word competitors because we're literally talking about competitions. So you yeah. don't have to shy away from that <laughs> word like we usually would. Our competitors are probably also talking a fair bit about sustainability because they're responding to, you know, the interests of the client and, and they know that it's a big priority. And I think one of the challenges with that as an area is that obviously when everybody is sort of talking about it, it becomes a little bit difficult when it's sort of top top priority for everybody. But it sounds like the way that you've approached it is to still then go further and kind of develop your own point of view or your own on-brand take on how to approach sustainability. And that's where there will be some contrast between you and some of the other practices, right? Where they will each have their own approach and their own kind of interpretation of that sustainable language, but you've kind of got your own sort of field and fouls kind of way of doing it, right? I think that's fair. I mean, when we first set up, we used to talk about sustainability a lot. And then we realized that that's what everyone was. And actually, the way we were talking <laughs> about it wasn't very different to anyone else, even if what we were doing was different. So, yes. so then, we, then we stopped and we just, we just focused on, on delivering the, the type of architecture we wanted to for a few years. And we did a bit of soul searching. And that was when we started to, to, to say, well, actually, we do need to define this and we, we need to be able to articulate it because we're not actually doing exactly the same thing as everyone else. Uh, and that was, that was where we, we started to explore the idea of, of low-tech principles and of craft and materiality, but also kind of interactivity with, with our buildings in the same way that vernacular or historic forms uh, people would 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 inhabit them in different ways and during different seasons and things. So we don't see low tech as being anti technology. Uh, it's more about some of the principles and around the kind of inherent qualities uh, of embodied carbon of of simple design. Trying not to yeah, trying not to separate everything. Like Ed was saying about bolt on things. You know, we want it to be integral. 
Yeah, I think it's been it's been helpful to um, alight on a term that we can kind of get around and interrogate. So um, I think it was a couple of years ago that we we said, okay, let's let's call it something. What, what, what we're doing is low and low tech kind of was discussed and um, it, it's sort of evolving. And, and we've had, had recent discussions about poetic pragmatism as a kind of uh, a sort of slant on it, because I suppose sort of low tech feels very kind of uh, physically focused, I suppose. Yeah. And um, what we're trying to do is build buildings with as low embodied carbon, but with as much joy and uh, yeah. impact and, and kind of richness and identity as possible. Yeah. And sometimes those things are in conflict. And I think we have to be as pra pragmatic as possible making buildings today because resources are depleting. Um, but also we need to make, make buildings people love and will we'll cherish and use for hundreds of years, hopefully. Yeah, if you just heard the words which we talk about without seeing the architecture, it, it could seem a bit low key. But actually, we some of our projects at the moment, you know, they do have a touch of the sublime. They've got volume. They've got kind of a, a muscularity to them. Uh, so it's definitely not against creating uh, kind of yeah interesting, powerful buildings. And I think that's where there's so much opportunity for architects today. We're kind of moving away from a, an era of throwing up buildings in with. It's either a steel frame or a concrete frame, then you you wrap it in something which and you kind of try and do something interesting with what you wrap it with. We're trying to move towards a more kind of inert, uh, more stereotomic form of architecture, more kind of load-bearing masonry, load-bearing stone, earth, timber frame, hybrids. Um, and there's just so much potential architecturally to give a, give a kind of richer form of architecture that's not kind of paper thin. You mentioned earlier this cross-pollinating of clients at parties that you guys host, which is awesome. And this idea of that being useful for developing your network, but also useful for your clients as well in terms of helping them to build their networks. I'm interested in this idea of you trying to find ways to support your clients and help them and assist them. And just just interested in talking about that just from this idea of maybe how architects can kind of support organizations or institutions that may then end up either resulting in potentially a return favor the other way or or possibly help to bring a project to reality in some way that might have otherwise not had you not helped them establish a particular relationship or whatever. So would you guys mind just speaking to that just in terms of this idea of taking an actual role in in sort of pushing clients in in a in a direction? Yeah, I've I've got two quick examples. One is that while we host parties, we've also had our site, we've used our site to host their own parties. So other organizations, uh, people like Open City had their launch here. Uh, we've let other education institutions use our site. Uh, so, so we've just been, we've, we've let, we've let our site be a vehicle for them to, to, to do their own things. So we don't have to shout about ourselves because they're, they're here on our site and they're on our turf and enjoying it and benefiting. So that's, that's a really straightforward one. The other one is that when it comes to funding applications, the, we, we tell, we tell our clients who we're working with, they know who we're working with, they know how our other projects are funded. So recently we had an arts council uh, bid going in for one client and they said, could you put me in touch with uh, the director of this other museum? Uh, and so uh, so I just made the introduction and I said, yep, yeah, this has been our experience, but over to you guys. 
And they just said, yep, thanks, and took it, took that conversation off by themselves. So that will benefit us because it's it's still a project we're working on. But from their point of view, they were like, well, it's great that you have this range of experience. And even if you don't have it, through two or three degrees of separation, you can probably help connect us to the right people to make this project happen. Lots of the clients have shared interests, shared concerns. Um, you know, often they're kind of um, sort of worried, you know, anxious going into projects. You know, it's, it's a big deal for clients to, to outlay vast amounts of money on a project. And um, often clients, um, you know, have to structure themselves in, in kind of new ways to deliver projects. So um, I think the more that we can kind of equip them with uh, the skills to be good clients and introduce them perhaps to other organizations who've, who've tested different models of delivering projects or tested different funding approaches, um, then you know, the projects will be stronger uh, as a result of it. Yeah, and those lessons learned saying this project worked brilliantly because we had a design champion. The project manager didn't involve too many people. We had focused we had focus groups that were limited or that fed back in in this way and and trying to I think we've traditionally we've also or in the past we've certainly brought lots of that information together into graphical materials so that when we're doing a pitch or when we're talking with a client we we're smoothing the path for a more efficient project because they can take they can take forever forever otherwise. Yeah, and often we'll put um, current clients in touch with past clients potentially to talk about you know things like procurement route. You know, there was a there was a major museum we were working with wanted to do a design and build. We thought it would be catastrophic for the project to go down that route, and uh, wrote a whole paper about uh, you know a different procurement route and, and the benefits of that and put them in touch with kind of other clients that they could talk to about uh, an alternative approach. So there's, there's real value. And I think um, it's, it's obviously one thing kind of the architects saying you should do this thing. Um, it's another thing to have the kind of the, the mutual support of, of past clients uh, having delivered successful projects, able to have kind of a conversation at a kind of client to client level, mm. which I think is really important. So I think kind of trying to kind of expand the network as much as possible um, at that level is really, really good. And, and then we benefit because we also get to have these conversations with inspiring people who run dynamic organizations and, yeah. and you hear about how they get their culture right or you observe it and you're yeah. like, well, they've got it really right. Those guys, perhaps less so. Uh, so yeah, so, and then obviously that feeds back to us about what we might do internally. Yeah, it's it, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think naturally you sort of have this sense as a business owner that you and each client have this like extremely private <laughs> relationship and <laughs> that they each exist in their own sort of separate silo and the thought of like bringing them all together it's not this intuitive thing that you would just sort of naturally do and I think a lot of people don't but obviously you guys quickly realize like the advantages of kind of connecting everybody and and bringing this network together so it's so interesting on that point I guess also interested in terms of work that you guys do you know, once you establish a relationship with an institution, I imagine that there's a there's a opportunity there for future projects to happen with that same organisation or that same like key key individual yeah. of that organisation maybe move somewhere else or that sort of thing. So I imagine that maintaining and nurturing those relationships and not just letting them sort of fade away the moment that you know you, the keys get handed over is is something kind of important. Could you guys just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it's it's so important. I mean, um, I think we're we, we don't necessarily do it in a structured way or in a kind of uh, an, or, an or really kind of organized fashion, but 
having um we probably have a party once uh twice a year or something yeah. uh summer party a, a christmas party um different scale sometimes we'll have a smaller event where we just invite uh sort of arts and cultural clients along um and those are really good opportunities to to sort of engage re-engage with past clients and and invite them and even if they don't come along at least there's been a point of contact there's been an opportunity to exchange some emails and just remind them that you're you're here so i think that that's a really that's a really good opportunity occasionally as well we we just um invite people for lunch or, or, or take a couple of people for lunch just uh with no particular kind of um yeah. aim at all it's just it's just sort of catching up and i think you know we've got really really good relationships with a handful of past clients that we keep in touch with we're not working with them actively at the moment but yeah, I, I think those informal uh, catch-ups are, are really fundamental. Yeah, going going for a drink with somebody, making sure that, say, for example, with a project milestone, when we get planning on a project or funding, quite often we've we've said, well, why don't we have a why don't we have a, a, a lunch or a dinner? We'll host it in the garden, uh, in the, if it's in the summer, and uh, and they they've been great because then you get all the informal feedback. But you've got to make it fun, right? I mean, <laughs> if, if if they like you and you're having a good time, and it's got to be genuine. If you if you, yeah, it's a bit hard to force it because if it's if it's not genuine, then the chances are you're not going to want to keep following up. But mm. uh, we're pretty lucky that we work with some cool people. I think also kind of um, taking the time to go to other events as well, or go to their events, or kind of. Get, yeah. keep uh, uh, on your radar kind of different you know exhibitions that might be opening or yeah. um that that's really helpful just generally i mean it obviously takes a huge amount of time and if you know running projects you're busy it's like oh another kind of uh, evening event to go, <laughs> go to but <laughs> but they are super important it's just yeah. those sort of touchstones through the year with with different people who may in in a couple of years time be the head of another organization and be a, be a decision maker and um, you know, help you out <laughs> to, to win a project. Sounds like also you guys just really enjoy it as well, the hospitality aspect to to kind of what you do, even just having the space that you have where it seems like it's become the perfect place for guests and parties and lunches and <laughs> like you've set it up beautifully. Well, it's interesting when we describe it, you know, it, it, it probably can, it can sound quite uh, idyllic and idealistic, uh, and the, the, there's the, those aspects are all there, but I just I think it's important to know that it's also like it's a, it's a struggle to keep on top of everything, and it's something is always probably slightly not not being totally neglected, but something is taking priority. So you go through these waves and cycles in the year. So like when 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 we can host people in the garden, we're really we're probably more sociable in the summer, uh, and. And but I think there is a there's a kind of instinctive component to it. Ed and I are going to an event an hour and a half from London tonight together, and uh, we get to have that long train journey, or we go out for dinner together, and we just mull it over and we talk about. So there's a there's yeah trying to trying to balance the kind of uh, things that have been quantitative, along with all of those subtle subtle things about how we're perceived and where we should be pushing next, when we should be just consolidating, when we should be pushing forwards. Um, yeah, I mean, it'd be very easy for us to spend 100% of our time giving lectures, yeah. meeting clients. I mean, it'd be quite fun, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, you know, we'd, we'd kind of neglect um, yeah, time in the office. I mean, I think there's, um, yeah, just balancing, isn't it? Sort of 
about a third of our time is probably doing that sort of stuff. Um, another third is 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 with with clients on projects in project meetings, and probably another third is sort of head down in the studio with our teams, yeah. uh, developing the designs and so on. And that's yeah. the sort of the, the triad, if you like, that we we try and maintain. And it, and it yeah. tips, you know, in the summer we're probably more yeah more kind of outgoing and got the gardens open and people are visiting yeah. a lot. Getting to the point where a third of your time is that sort of public facing talks and networking and attending events or hosting events or things like things like that. I mean, that's still quite a significant amount of your time as well for the two of you. And I, as you mentioned, it's sort of cycles throughout the year. There's times where it's probably yeah. half your time and other times where it's just a fraction. So that that certainly makes sense. It sort of sort of sits in my mind alongside what you were saying also about investing fairly large amounts of a percentage of the, the practices turnover into I imagine things like photography, film, you know, getting help with PR and comms, that sort of thing. So in both of those areas, pretty significant sacrifice in a sense of both time, both resources, but what's driving it by the sounds of it, have a big aspiration in terms of where you want to take the practice, right? Like it's not like you're doing all of this to just sort of, we're really, really happy with exactly where we're at right now. And it's just like kind of keeping things ticking over. It's it's not that because that wouldn't take that much work, would it? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, but it's but it's about going like we actually have these really, really lofty goals. Like I'm just guessing. Well, it's true. We've always been looking looking ahead to the future because we're still we're a relatively young practice. You know, we're kind of we're both kind of around 40 and we have uh, we're gonna be around for a long time. So we we knew that this first third of the practice the the practice life the first third of it was going to be about trying to kind of establish ourselves and be kind of laying the foundations for what for what comes next so some of the things that we've always said well what what is it about what we want to achieve is it about scale is it about impact how do we measure these things is it about uh kind of yeah, could it be about culture, about profile, all sorts of things? And of course, we really, we we really care about the profession and the future of the built environment. We want to be a, a a force for good. We want to have a much wider impact than just what we deliver ourselves. So that's part of the kind of the low tech movement. Is part of uh, our our attention to materials. I think culturally, you know, that's why we do, why we have articles about the practice and about uh, about about our culture because. We, we've we've done a lot of looking outside of our own organization at, at what works and we want to be a positive force there uh, but I think we do want to have a wider impact uh, on the public you know that's why we love doing public buildings um, we have huge numbers of visitors who pass through the sites that we're working at uh, we would like to do European work uh, but it's it's not driven by it's not driven by scale. We're not saying we want to be a practice of 100 people or we want to turn over 5 million or whatever it might be. Those are not the the indicators that we measure it by. It's not just about the individual projects we're delivering. I think it's sort of, we've. I suppose we've realized that w- we can have a greater impact um, in influencing younger practice, practitioners potentially, um, in the future potentially teaching a bit more. Um, I think it's that kind of, um we've always talked about being a kind of an an educational environment um not just sort of inwardly but outwardly as well so it's a sort of uh, this incubator of kind of um projects we're doing we're we're always doing r&d we're always trying to kind of push this sort of lower carbon ways of building um 
and we we kind of feel we have a responsibility to um, sort of pass that knowledge on in whatever way we think writing articles, publishing books, hopefully in the future, um, and through through the buildings as well, sort of sort of uh, leading by example, I suppose. Um, so there's sort of um, whilst it's it's hard, it's really hard work just to kind of make a practice stack up financially and, and keep the wheels turning and like deliver jobs like that that's sort of that's a grind that's hard enough in itself but we we do really want kind of in perhaps in the, in our next decade to be kind of giving more back um sort of professionally um teaching in terms of research because we think that that's where we could have probably have a kind of a much greater impact than than sort of individual buildings and the kind of form that that takes we're you know not 100 percent sure yet but um that, that's what sort of really drives us and motivates us i think that's true yeah the professional development of our team because they you know people come and they move on and they seeing where that where our alumni as it were go is really fascinating there's been quite a few practices who've set up off the back of having worked with us uh and over you know in 20, 30 years time, one would like to look back and go, wow, like look at the broader, the broader impact of the people we've worked with both internally and externally. I'm interested a little bit in project selection in relation to that stuff you're just talking about there, which is that, you know, a bigger purpose beyond the individual building and also goals and aspirations that aren't purely, we need more turnover. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, mm. we're, we're trying to really think values first in terms of the sort of work that we're doing the educational aspect of it where the each project that you do becomes this teaching tool you know for the public in a sense right so it must be so important in terms of selecting the projects that you work on and and how do you prioritize that there'd, there'd be a certain type of client where you'd never be able to test anything remotely kind of um new or innovative or kind of uh, you know, unconventional. Um, I think we're, we're always trying to seek out clients who uh, are, are in kind of a position where they're willing to kind of perhaps be more radical, um, be kind of trailblazing, you know, um, testing out, not, not kind of crazy new sort of technologies or anything, but, um, you know, build, building in this sort of more low-tech way. Um, it's quite unusual um, compared to the kind of, the industry standard. And I suppose if we were working mostly for developers, um, you know, we'd be pushed towards just doing the sort of same old, old thing. Um, so I think working with certain institutions, I mean, we're fortunate to, to work with colleges in Oxford and Cambridge, and they have a very, very kind of uh, long legacy of, of having built very high quality buildings. And um, whilst one can look at it and say, well, it's quite elitist working with those sorts of institutions. At the same time, if we can do our R and D with um, yeah. with people like that, and um, have have quite intellectual conversations with the people running those colleges about what should we be doing to kind of push uh, this debate forward to make radically low embodied carbon buildings, and for you to be kind of um, at the, he- the head of this, really. I mean, if if you can't build a very very low embodied carbon, very low operational carbon building at those institutions, then there's no hope for, for kind of doing it in the mainstream. Because they they want to also sort of be an example to the world in the sort of the work that they do, right? Like they want to demonstrate exactly something. You yeah, know? yeah. So um, we, we, I suppose we we were quite strategic in trying to work with people who 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 like-minded and trying to really kind of push forward 
those principles, those ideals, and having the fortunately having the kind of the capital to sort of to do that. Yeah, most of our clients are the end users and will occupy the projects that we design for them, which again is is quite unusual in architecture these days. So that probably is one of our criteria. Uh, and as Ed says, you know, about the ambition of those clients, that's also really critical. How do you sense that? Is that something that just based on reputation of that institution, is it based on the way that they describe their kind of brief or their competition or, or what, what sort of are the, main, the big signals that you kind of look for? Reading their, their briefs, their kind of values, their own sustainability statements. I mean, those uh, institutions, the, the colleges, they're, they're all um, gearing up to become net zero by 2030. Many of them uh, sort of uh, signed up to kind of pledges and they know that the the kind of largest part of that process is through their buildings and through their estates. Um, so there's there's a, a lot of work going on, uh, and you know across the country, but kind of um, principally uh, with with those sort of uh, institutions and and also the kind of national museums. I mean, we're working with the Natural History Museum. Um, it's probably not uh, sort of very few institutions in the UK that you can associate more with kind of sustainability, with biodiversity, and so on. So. Um, working with institutions like that, we kind of know um, it won't just be us pushing them, it will be them pushing us as well. And kind of collectively, um, we're kind of uh, try, trying to kind of uh, deliver kind of you know, radically improved um, buildings from a sustainability point of view. And we'll often ask them at interview, you know, if, if not before, if we can speak to them before and ask them about their ambitions, we will. But it, otherwise, at interview, we can say, well, what is it that we should be testing, developing, pushing on this project, what's going to make it unique? Because with institutions, often their identity is so strong. They're totally aware of that. They're totally aware of how they're perceived. Um, and as Ed says, their kind of, uh, you know, their, their physical environment is one of the most obvious uh, ways that comes through. So, yeah. Mm. You know, this is a sort of loosely based marketing strategy brand kind of podcast. So we do need to kind of, I think we've been talking about it in a broad sort of strategic sense the whole episode, but I'm kind of interested. You, you did mention earlier on that something that you were quite um, quite thoughtful about, even at the very early days of the studio, was this idea that, you know, we, we do need to be kind of curated and um, purposeful in thinking about the sorts of materials that we put out there, you know, the website, presentations, documents, all that sort of thing. I'm just interested in your philosophy around that, what you concentrate on. Early on, I remember, as I said, Ed was really conscious of our outputs and our graphical outputs and having a style guide and things. And uh, and Ed wanted to bring in uh, a really good... Uh, graphic designer and kind of branding agency to, to give us, to do us an identity. And uh, Ed's brother is a product designer and had a really cool company making really nice watches. And, uh, and I think that there was kind of, I was, I was looking on in awe at the power of, of, of this. Uh, and I'll hand over to Ed to expand on how we selected those people. But, but from my point of view, I was kind of coming at it from a very like naive position, but I could very quickly see the power in having all of our external communications looking right, having the right kind of tones and textures, and even down to the paper, down to, you know, all the things that architects 
care quite a lot about, but so do so do clients. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, but it was. I mean, just sort of painting the, the the picture of where we were at at the time. You know, we we were only kind of eight people uh, as a practice. We were kind of barely making ends meet, and um, I was there saying, "Yeah, we need to invest like tens of thousands of pounds in like really really amazing branding and a website and all this stuff." And before that point, we'd been kind of getting by doing it ourselves and kind of getting a bit of ad hoc input here and there. But um, given we were kind of around is around the point of winning our first um, gallery project, I suppose it was, that we kind of invested in. Um, we'd been collaborating with a really amazing graphic designer on um, a couple of exhibitions and um, just forged a really kind of, they, they were based in the same studio as us. Um, and um, we, we kind of just forged a really like amazing relationship and um they that they kind of uh, came on board to, to, to design it um but i think it had um for me it was about kind of making sure that all the touchstones with our clients with sort of public any kind of interface was sort of well thought through consistent and there was just um an appearance of sort of uh formality and professionalism um i mean i kind of an analogy might be about growing up, I always used to work in kitchens and work, work kind of, you know, um, back of house and like from washing up, prepping, all that sort of stuff. And it, the kitchens are often like complete shit show, like so much drama going on. And then you go out into the restaurant and it's like absolute serenity and like the public <laughs> image is just like, oh, perfect. And uh, I just, I suppose we kind of, that, that was what we wanted to, I mean, it, it was like crazy behind the scenes and, you know, working yeah. all hours and, yeah a bit kind of um, uh, far from being kind of like a, a professional outfit. We are now, but um, <laughs> but I suppose it was really important to just um, at least initially give that impression of uh, of rigor, of kind of uh, consistency. Um, so that, that, yeah, came through to designing initially just a sort of a logo and a kind of, um, there was sort of a typeface eventually that was designed for us. Um, and then that trickled through to sort of templates, website, a style guide. And we did a kind of refresh of that um, uh, three, three or four years ago as well. But um, it's been really impactful because when we get comments on it, um, it, it, even today on kind of the, the, the kind of dialogue between the way that we are sort of typeface and our graphics are in dialogue with the kind of work that we produce in terms of the sort of sensitivity of it there's there's a kind of understated quality to to lots of those things and they are pretty minimalist but they're really they're, they're really beautiful a bit like uh, the type you know when it's at a small font scale you it, it looks a little bit unusual but then when we use it in documents and suddenly actually you can appreciate all of all of this subtlety within it, it has quite a kind of handmade quality which yeah. is something that um a practice for everyday life who, who designed it um, we're really interested in kind of bringing kind of craft and, and actually kind of making kind of almost like a handmade typeface um, yeah. with kind of a very sort of subtle thickening as if you were kind of drawing it with, uh, you know, with a pen or something. Yeah. And we used to be trying to always uphold those standards with, and templates within the practice. But these days, I think in a way the practice has its own uh, has its own life and people are pushing each other and the quality of the image making of yeah. the documents of the presentation uh and 
I think that maybe only has happened in the last year and a half, though, that I've noticed that it has uh, the, the the quality of the outputs has taken on a life of its own, uh, and it's partly because of this this structure that was, has enabled them to do that, that, enabled the team to do that. The great thing was that um, once we had this framework, you can then relatively easily kind of um, translate it to, to different formats. So we kind of uh, launched our first book when we completed the Western Gallery at Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And shortly after that, we, we published a self-published a book but that um, benefited from, you know, the, the new typeface that we designed, the whole kind of style guide. And, um, you know, there was, a, there was a structure for that and that can then be kind of translated to web to films that we've made you know little sort of three minute films we're asked to make now and again for pitches we can still use that kind of graphic identity and there's just um consistency that appears throughout yeah yeah people find it reassuring don't they they find yeah consistency and care and thought you know it's a yeah consistency from thing to thing that they see but also consistency between what they're seeing in the work what you're saying and then what they're seeing in the the branding. And I think a lot of it is subconscious communication, right? It's like they might not be explicitly analyzing, oh, the typeface is giving me these emotions, but it's just like this subconscious sort of reptile brain thing that they just see it and they just feel a certain way, right? Compared to what they might be seeing from other practices perhaps who who look maybe a bit more shambolic in their kind of approach. No, it's really interesting. And I just like that... Um, I think there's this been this theme that's come up on the episode of doing these things perhaps earlier in the journey than others might have when it was a little bit of a risk and a little bit uncomfortable, but it was going, you know, it's really bloody important. Let's sort of sacrifice and do this because it's the right thing to do and it will it's a good investment and it will kind of get us closer to where we want to get to quicker, right? That seems to be the sort of thing that you've been doing fairly frequently. Yeah, laying the foundations and setting the tone and setting out your stall and then uh, and your roadmap and then and then trying to roughly follow it. You know, there's always some interesting detours, but at least there's a there's some idea of where we want to go. Mm. It's also, I mean, um, the the graphic identity and um, the kind of that, that language is is often the sort of first point of contact for whether it's someone visiting the website. Um, or someone reading a cover letter for a submission that we've um, uh, we've put together. That's that's the first thing that they touch or they, they interact with from the practice. So making sure that it's it's not a kind of a flimsy bit of paper with a kind of shambolic kind of graphic language. You know that it's it's really um, carefully thought through. And I mean, I think the significance of like the first covering letter that you write to someone is is really important. So having excellent kind of um, graphic design and, and sort of brand identity that follows through is, is super important. I want to do a, like some sort of study around architects that just like resource, resource their marketing and branding properly and like what that leads to in, in terms of, yeah. because I think, I don't know, I guess there's this perception that to like do marketing well or comms well, you have to like do a lot of it. It's about increasing the quantity. And I guess there is like an aspect of that, but I think a lot of the time it's like practices just doing the the basics, but doing them really well, um, spending a bit more on it, you know, um, to work with really good people seems to be all, well, a big part of what you actually need to be, to succeed with it. And it's not actually that complicated kind of beyond that, I suppose. It's a great point. I mean, that's one of, it's like design, you know, it's the, the essence of good design is kind of when you can't take 
any more of the the the, the superfluous stuff away and uh and i think similarly with with comms you know it's got to be uh consistent and it's got to be it's got to have integrity but quite often less is more yeah like philosophically that's where i've been at with with marketing strategy in like recent years i think earlier on i was thinking in terms of like trying to get everybody to do as much marketing as possible as many types of things here's all the different stuff you could do that was like the the earlier sort of inexperienced sort of side of it but then with the experience it's about the real challenge is reducing it down to as few elements as yeah. possible right but yeah. then putting all the quality and all the love and attention into those few things that you're doing has become like the recipe but i think it's funny because like it, it kind of is coming back to an architectural value system but yeah. in marketing mm. and comms like i think that is how we think about design and good architecture is is kind of that 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 sort of stripping things back i think the the journey that we've been on so far and that we've uh, that we that we're going on um, has been around a uh, kind of holistic integral approach to architecture and practice and our culture um, and initially that may have started out as a kind of an internal process about getting our own house in order whilst getting the design right and things but we're at this transition now where we have a kind of a public profile we have a public impact uh, and that the next step is about making sure that it all everything feeds into each element to to create a greater whole uh, and I think where we're heading for the next 10 years is really exciting because those foundations have been laid and we're we're we're, we're setting off on on the next yeah the next important step of our journey yeah that's a really good summary i think um yeah we're kind of moving from a, a period of creating to a period of kind of maintaining and kind of consolidating our our kind of profile and and actually kind of it, it's there's quite a, a big kind of five-year chunk of time ahead of us um where we're really focusing on kind of the delivery of pretty major projects so i think that will slightly shift the kind of the way that we've done PR and the way that we kind of we talk about the practice you'll just disappear for five years basically <laughs> well I think it will be sort of slightly different rather than lots of sort of um smaller bits of kind of uh press and things I think we're moving towards sort of slightly more kind of grown up uh, fewer more significant projects yeah and, uh, and and yeah with a bigger impact very exciting Guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Dave. So it's a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to great it's to really discuss good. it together. That was my conversation with Fergus Fielden and Edmund Fowles from Field and Fowles. If you'd like to learn more about their studio, you can visit fieldandfowles.co.uk or follow them on Instagram at fieldandfowles. This episode of Office Talk is sponsored by Office Dave Sharp, a practice providing specialised marketing consultancy and strategy tailored to meet the particular needs of architects across the United Kingdom. To learn more about our process and book a consultation to discuss your practice, simply visit officedavesharp.com. That's all for this episode. Thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next time.